How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Seven years ago, there was a broad political consensus in Washington, D.C. that burning fossil fuels releases heat-trapping gases that could alter the Earth's atmosphere. John McCain, Newt Gingrich, and coal state Democrats accepted the fundamentals of climate science and the need to reduce carbon emissions. Today, it's a different story. Republicans and Democrats are loath to mention climate, and the percentage of Americans who say humans are the primary cause of global warming is much lower than it was in the second term of President George W. Bush. Skeptics are winning the climate communication battle, even as temperatures rise and the number and intensity of floods and droughts increases worldwide. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the politicization of high school physics and chemistry and how science is communicated in the public realm. Along with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're joined by three distinguished scientists. Michael Mann is professor of geosciences at Penn State and author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. Catherine Hayhoe is professor of atmospheric sciences at Texas Tech University and co-author of A Climate of Change, Global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. And Bill Andreg is a graduate student at Stanford University who is researching forests in the American West. Please welcome them to Climate One. I should mention that Bill Andreg is uh, pinch-hitting on very short notice for Terry Root, who couldn't be here today due to a uh, family emergency. So thank you for, uh, for stepping in on short notice. Um, Michael Mann, you published a seminal work uh, study on the hockey stick. So tell us what the hockey stick is and how you got hit in the head with it. <laughs> well, it's not a sports implement. It's uh, actually a curve that my co-authors and I published more than a decade ago, uh, which uh, attempted to reconstruct temperatures back in time. We only have about a century of widespread thermometer records around the world. Um, so to place modern warming in a longer-term context, we have to turn to what we call proxy data, uh, things like tree rings and corals and ice cores, to piece together the puzzle of how the climate varied in the more distant past. And what this curve showed was that while it was relatively warm uh, about a 1,000 years ago, as far back as we could go, uh, the recent warming exceeded anything uh, that we've seen for at least the past 1,000 years. Uh, the graph became an icon in the climate change debate. It was featured in the summary for policymakers of the 2001 uh, fourth assessment report uh, no, the uh, third assessment report of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, when it became an icon in the climate change debate, those who find the science of climate change inconvenient uh, saw the need to try to discredit um, this graph. And it, indeed, uh, they saw discrediting me as a way of trying to do that. And so much like uh, many of my colleagues, my other climate science colleagues in the past have been uh, attacked, even vilified uh, for the work that they've done that demonstrates the reality of climate change, so too uh, was I vilified uh, for the hockey stick. And my book uh, tells the story of what it's like to be a scientist and to find yourself sort of an uh, involuntary and accidental public figure. And what I've tried to do, uh, you know, if I'm going to, be put in the limelight in the way that uh, our detractors have tried uh, to, to put me in the limelight. Uh, you know, I've, I'm going to try to take advantage of that. And, and the book was part of my effort to do that. Catherine Hayhoe, you say that you're willing to take it in the neck, and if not, you're not talking to the right people. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, not to continue the hockey stick metaphor. Yeah, instead yeah. of getting whacked over you the You are head. Canadian, by the way. So, <laughs> I yeah. am. I have my own, and it's actually a real one. Um, I, I feel like uh, with, with climate change being so divisive right now, so polarized, that if we as scientists are not getting attacked, then we're not talking to the right people. I feel a little bit almost like you know a doctor who ran a test and found a red flag of some potential disease you could have and decided not to tell you because they're afraid that you'd be angry at them. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous, but I feel like with climate scientists, we're the same way. We're taking the temperature of the planet. 
We're seeing some red flags, and we have a responsibility to tell people about that. Bill Andreg, you're relatively new to this field. Uh, did you know what you were getting into when you decided to pursue a career <laughs> in atmospheric science that these kinds of personal attacks would be part of the uh, part of the career you chose? A little bit. I mean, I having uh, studied under Stephen Schneider and, and watching the <laughs> experiences of Mike Mann and Catherine Hayo and and others, I was prepared for the public scrutiny of of the study. But we we did a study on climate change and the proportion of scientists that sort of agree with this synthesis by the Intergovernmental Panel. And it's incredibly high, 97, 98%. And I was I was certainly not prepared for the personal nature and the kind of immediacy of the backlash that was uh, accompanied this study. So what happened? You published a report that said they questioned the scientific qualifications of the so-called scientists who are skeptics. And, and what happened? What was the consequence? Well, so our, our study did two things. First, we found that there was an incredibly high agreement behind what the IPCC had articulated as as the, the main components of human-caused climate change. And then second, that those who are publicly doubting and expressing their their lack of agreement uh, essentially were not very well qualified, that the vast majority of them did not publish in the scientific literature. They hadn't studied atmospheric science or, or fields relevant uh, and the backlash was really immediate, that the Haiti emails came in qu- quite rapidly. Uh, the blogosphere was an, sort of an amplifier to this, that it picked up these messages and suddenly, you know, your email address, and this has happened to nice. plenty of climate scientists, suddenly your email address is <laughs> across a dozen blogs that are uh, not very friendly. Catherine Hayhoe, does this have a chilling effect? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when when people post your picture and your email address and encourage others to send you nasty emails, of course it can. I mean, I had the experience one time of opening my mail in the morning after I'd been on the O'Reilly show the night before and having over 200 messages from people I didn't know in a single morning. Out of those 200, one was nice. (laughs) And the others were anywhere from unpleasant to actually downright evil. And Mike Mann, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, you have a couple of attorney generals who, I mean, you... It's just one attorney general. One attorney general. Okay, only one. <laughs> uh, but you really have had a target on your back because of the hockey stick. What, what's that experience been like? Well, you know, it, it, I believe that, um, you know, the attacks against me and other climate scientists are intended to have a chilling effect. They're intended to make an example out of us for others who might think of stepping up and participating in the public discourse or publishing uh, scientific uh, findings that have implications uh, for you know, human-caused climate change. Um, I've also opened letters, um, uh, like uh, Catherine. Um, one uh, letter contained a white substance, and I actually had to have the FBI come in, and there was police tape over the, uh, the door of my, o- uh, my office um, at uh, Penn State University. Um, they had to send the material off to a lab. Um, it, fortunately, it turned out it was uh, a harmless substance. It was only intended to intimidate me. It was only intended to send a chilling message to me. Uh, but that's you know, part of the life of being a climate scientist today, participating in the public discourse. Mm-hmm. So when you are looking at a prospective research project, do you think, well, that one's kind of hot. I'm not going to touch that one. I better, you know, something like that. Does it affect your research choices and how you go about your, your job? Well, not me. I mean, I've, I've already made a commitment. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to go down this road. Um, you know, this is, I, I, I see, you know, the, the attacks against me have actually led me to recognize the importance of not being intimidated um, by these sorts of tactics by not sending uh, an example, setting an example for younger scientists um, who might decide that, well, hey, maybe I should go into this other field. Um, uh, that is, I think, in part what our detractors would like to see. They would like to see a, um, you know, a, a barrier uh, set up um, uh, to prevent other scientists from, from doing research that might uh, have implications for, you know, uh, our uh, burning of fossil fuels and, and policies related to carbon emissions. Um, you know, we, we can't allow science to be chilled. We can't allow the scientific agenda to be set uh, by those who have vested interests to not have uh, the truth uh, be unveiled. Let's... let's um... <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about who these people are, motivations. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, you said that these skeptics or deniers actually have quite a, a firm grasp of facts and that they actually have facts on um, 
yeah, they're, they're well-informed. They may be, yeah, expound on that. Well, my own personal experience living in West Texas is that the people that I meet in the grocery store or walking down the street or in the office next door, they know more about the issues surrounding climate change than the average person would who says, oh, we have to take action right away. Because they don't think it's a real problem, they have all these reasons to back up why they don't. And so that's why I don't believe that facts are enough. Now, as a scientist, I do think that facts are enough. But in realizing that this is not necessarily an issue of facts, it's an issue of fear. There is an enormous amount of fear that we are dealing with an issue where the impacts are distant and far away, but the solutions are imminent, and people fear them as being very costly and infringing on our freedom, our economy, and our rights. So there's many emotional issues attached to this, and I really feel like it's an issue of emotions, not facts, because to circle back to the question you asked Mike, do I think about which research projects to do? No, because I don't get it for a research project. I get it for standing up in public and saying, climate is changing, humans are the cause, and we're seeing the impacts. That's what we get it for. It's not new research. It's the basic facts that we have known for decades. And so are you saying that facts don't persuade people? that it have to come in a different way? How do you uh, communicate then with someone who's a skeptic or denier? It's not facts. How do you do it? There's certainly a few people who facts are, are very important to, but like I said, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's an emotional issue. It's about fear. It's about thinking that I'm a conservative and conservatives don't think this is true. Or I'm a person of faith and this is incompatible with my faith that challenges the sovereignty of God. It challenges things that we hold dear and near to our hearts, not our brains. So that's why I feel like it's so important to start with the values that we share. We all live on this planet. We all want a better life for our children. We want a healthy economy. Um, those of us who hold to almost any major faith believe that creation is something to be taken care of, um, that people are to be loved. And so when we start from these shared values and then we build a case for taking action on climate change, we're starting from the identities that people already have instead of trying to make green tree huggers of the world. Michael Mann, you've written about six stages of denial. Walk us through quickly those. It's compatible. Well, so we've seen this retreat over, you know, since the time that I came into the science of climate change back in the early 1990s. Um, you know, originally, uh, the claim made by uh, those who deny the threat of climate change, uh, the claim uh, was that the earth wasn't warming. Um, that soon became untenable. Uh, because there was solid enough evidence that was mounting, uh, not just thermometer records, but independent lines of evidence that uh, tell us that the planet is warming. Um, so the next stage of denial is then, well, okay, it's warming, but this is part of a natural cycle. Um, uh, then, of course, that becomes untenable because of the work that climate scientists have done that demonstrate that the warming we've seen is not consistent with the pattern of what we would expect if it were natural causes rather than human factors that were responsible for the warming. Um, so, so it goes uh, on down that sort of, so then, you know, the argument would be, of course, well, okay, well, maybe it is part of that warming is due to human impacts, but it's pretty small and it's not going to be very much in the future. Um, the climate, the sensitivity of the climate system is at the low end of what the scientists say. Um, and then eventually that becomes untenable. The science is pretty clear now um, on the fact that the climate system is quite sensitive. We're seeing that in the Arctic right now. We're seeing that Arctic sea ice is retreating at a schedule that, in fact, is decades ahead of what the models uh, uh, were projecting. Um, we're actually seeing changes unfold faster than what we expected. Um, and then ultimately, and somewhat ironically, eventually it, it comes full circle. Okay, well, it's too late to do anything about it anyways, um, <laughs> so we might as well just adapt to what's coming. Um, and so uh, one has to recognize um, that uh, denial does take various forms, and I think there are multiple constituencies that we're speaking to. Um, um, it isn't a monolithic constituency. Let's talk about that. There is some work done by Yale and George Mason University called the Six Americas. It really breaks down sort of the approaches that Americans have toward climate change from alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, and dismissive. So, Catherine, how do you fine-tune your message to those different types of people? We're actually working on exactly that right now with some people who are experts in social, social psychology, uh, media, and marketing. Because, again, see, it's, it's going off of the science. It's into us. We're people. How do we react to facts? How do we react to information? We all have different values. We all have different things that motivate us. And so we have to recognize that for one person, 
um, making a better world for their child might be paramount. For another person, national security might be the issue that moves us. For someone else, a sense of responsibility, loving our neighbor, or um, stewarding creation might be what what moves us to the next step. So even though there's a one-size-facts-fit-all, there's not a one-size-message-fits-all. And that's a new thing within the scientific community. You are not trained to be communicators. You're trained to be researchers. Mm -hmm. Communication is not what you're paid for. It's not what gets you tenure. It's not what gets you professional accolades, et cetera. Uh, this is a, something on top of what you're all trained and expected to do. Mm-hmm. So how are you doing at that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're doing it because, like I said, we have a responsibility, I feel like. We, we, we have this issue, I think I'd probably speak for all of us here, that if we hold silent on it, who will speak? We are not in this because we value people's opinions of us. We are not in this because we want to receive pleasant emails in the morning. We're in it because this is the truth, and we have to tell it. Catherine Hayo is a professor at Texas Tech. Uh, we're also talking with Michael Mann and Bill Andreg at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, then you've also been a key person speaking to communities of faith, and that's one of the most powerful levers, a lot of people in faith. So how do you get over that God's sovereignty issue that humans can't affect creation? <laughs> that is actually a fairly common question, but it's easy to answer. Just look around us today. Do we see things happening that are bad? Do we see consequences of poor choices that we've made all the time? Somebody has a drink too many, gets in the car, kills an innocent person. We make poor health choices. It leads to health issues later in life. We see all the time evidence of reaping what we have sowed. And there's even verses in the Bible that tell us that. So there's no way challenges God's sovereignty. Rather, it's a reflection of the free will that he's given us to make choices and then to bear the consequences of those choices. Michael Mann, anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that um, at some level, um, you know, whether you want to frame this in terms of religious faith, uh, faith or, um, or ethics, um, to me, we focus so much on climate change as an issue of science or an issue of policy or economics, you know, cost-benefit analysis, but, uh, you know, not often enough do we frame it for the issue that it really is, ultimately. It's an issue of our ethical obligation, um, uh, I have a daughter, you know, who's seven years old, um, and I want to make sure that we don't make decisions today, that we don't lock, um, you know, that we, that we don't lock in a, a future, um, a degraded earth for her children and grandchildren through the decisions we are making now with our fossil fuel emissions. Um, we, you know, to some extent, we have, um, you know, we have gained uh, economically from uh, access to cheap, you know, dirty, uh, sources of energy, uh, but there's a very real cost of that, and that cost is going to be borne increasingly down the road. Um, we still have time to avert uh, a future where we leave our children and grandchildren a degraded planet, but there isn't a whole lot of time to do that. The late, great Stephen Schneider once said that basically our strategy has been we'll make our kids richer, and then they'll have money to figure it out, to deal with it, right? It's like, yeah. we're going to leave you some money, and uh, good luck. Here's some money, right? Yeah. I mean, so how, what's it going to be like for our children? Well, I mean, your models predict uh, six- or seven-year-olds. I have an eight-year-old daughter. They may live to the end of this century. What are the, what are they looking at? Well, uh, you know, we um, there's still time uh, to uh, prevent uh, what most scientists uh, classify as, you know, what would constitute a truly dangerous uh, impacts on the planet as far as climate change is concerned, another three-and-a-half degrees of Fahrenheit warming, uh, we can prevent that. Um, we would need to prevent CO2 concentrations from uh, reaching about 450 parts per million. For every million parts of air, 450 of them being CO2 molecules. Um, pre-industrial levels were 280 Right now, they're about 394. Next year, if we were sitting in this room, they would be about 397. The year after that, 400. You can see that we get to 450 pretty soon if we don't make some dramatic changes with our carbon emissions. And so if you do the math, uh, and my uh, good friend uh, Bill McKibben has been going around the country with his Do the Math tour, talking about the numbers that are involved. And ultimately, we can still prevent dangerous impacts on our planet, um, on our climate, uh, but we have to bring our fossil fuel emissions to a peak within a matter of years. We have to ramp them down dramatically in the decades ahead, and it's going to require 
a major investment of infrastructure, a shift to renewable energy sources. Um, we can do it. There's nothing preventing us from doing it other than willpower. How much of it's already baked? Sorry, Catherine Hayhoe? Oh, I was just going to say that what I study specifically is bringing this global issue down to the local scale. And what I found is that in nine cases out of ten, the reason why we care about climate change is not because it's introducing a new problem that we've never seen before in the places where we live. It's because it's interacting with existing stressors or vulnerabilities we've already built into the system. Here in California... Half of the water comes from Sierra Nevada snowpack, and there isn't enough to go around today. What happens as it gets warmer and that snowpack melts in the winter? Come spring, the Central Valley farmers will not have the water that they need, and there already isn't enough. In West Texas, we're taking our water out of an aquifer. In 50 years, we have drained half the aquifer. It's not coming back. Where are we going to get our water then? As it gets warmer, we need more of it. In the Northeast, you have big cities built right at sea level. They're already vulnerable to storms today, as we saw. What happens as sea level increases? We've built these vulnerabilities into our system, and as the world warms, we're going to see increasing risks that we have already built into our cities, our agriculture, our water, and our energy. And is that water vulnerability percolating into the political uh, system and the public consciousness in Texas? In Texas, you, when you buy your property, you buy the water rights to the property. And so up until now, you have had the ability to withdraw unlimited amounts of water from the aquifer. For the first time, they are attempting to limit what you can take out of the aquifer, and people are up in arms because that's your freedom. It's been taken away. Mm-hmm. So things are changing. And when you say up in arms, you really mean arms. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Bill Andreg, uh, water stress and forests is something that you study. Tell us what we can, what, how much of the droughts and fires that we saw in Colorado and the American West can be connected to climate today? Certainly. Well, and this touches on your previous question as well. What, what is the future going to look like? And I think particularly in the Western U.S. in the last couple of years especially, we've seen snapshots of what that is. That's longer fire seasons, larger fires, potentially, you know, stress on water resources, snowpack. Mm-hmm. And droughts, uh, and so with regards to our, our forests that we draw a lot of economic benefits from, uh, we're seeing really the the early signs, the tip of the iceberg as to what these forests are going to do during stress. We've we've seen a number of widespread, massive tree mortality events in the western U.S. and Canada in the last five to ten years. Uh, these are pretty strongly linked to temperature, winter temperature, summer drought stress, uh, and it's, it's fairly safe to say these are kind of the early warning signals of, mm-hmm. of what's coming for these ecosystems that a lot of local communities depend on. And when you're in Colorado doing research, do people connect those dots, the causal cause mm-hmm. link? They're starting to. We, we do a number of public talks at community centers and high schools. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when people, you're out mm-hmm. in the field and you're taking measurements up next to a tree or in a tree and People always stop and they want to know what you're doing. <laughs> and some of the time they want to chat and tell you what they think is happening. But if they're, if they're willing to listen to you, the vast majority of them actually do take notes and, and uh, stop to think about it more. Michael Mann? Yeah, well, you know, 2012 here in the U.S. gave us a glimpse of the sort of future that's in store if we don't do something to, um, to avert, you know, if we don't shift away from business as usual. Um, we saw record temperatures this last summer. We saw record drought over a large part of the country um, in Colorado uh, that came together with record fuel, lots of dead wood, dead forests or weakened forests because of the pine bark beetle infestation, which is happening because of record warm winters that aren't killing off these infestations. So, you know, forgive the, um, the, the term, it was uh, literally a perfect storm of climate-related circumstances that came together to give us that record wildfire. What else did we see? We saw um, a record storm, a hybrid storm, uh, Hurricane Sandy, um, which you know broke uh, previous records uh, for flooding in New York City. Um, and there was certainly a climate change component in the sense that of that 13-foot coastal surge along the mid-Atlantic coast along the New Jersey coast in, at New York City, at least one foot of that was global sea level rise. And that made a big difference. That's the difference between 
a bad and a disastrous flooding event. Um, that storm was sitting over near record ocean temperatures. That means it had more moisture within it. We saw that a year ago, uh, 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 the, the previous um, uh, year, uh, with uh, Hurricane Irene, which was sitting over record warm ocean temperatures off the east coast of the U.S., meaning it had a lot more moisture in it. It was a slow-moving storm, and it dumped all of that moisture leading to record flooding over a large part of the northeastern U.S. We saw record sea ice decline this summer in the Arctic, and scientists are starting to piece that together, potentially with the unusual trajectory that Sandy took, which was part of the coastal impact that it had. Michael Mann is professor of geosciences at Penn State. Our other guests today at Climate One are Catherine Hayhoe, professor of atmospheric sciences at Texas Tech University, and Bill Andreg, a doctoral student at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we talked about the pine bark beetle. I want to talk a little bit about Canada. That infestation goes all the way up. It's devastated uh, forests in British Columbia. Uh, so, Catherine, as a Canadian, how does the U.S. debate about this differ than Canada and other countries in terms of this debate about is it real, are we causing it? Well, I would love to be able to say that things are very different in Canada than they are in the States, but I can't. Um, there is definitely many more people in Canada who feel like this is an important issue, but you can have all the goodwill in the world, and if you're not doing anything about it, does it put you any further ahead? A big part of this issue, though, again, is that the solutions to climate change um, bring up issues that are ingrained deep in the American psyche. Words like taxation, government control... People start thinking back to 1776 when you hear words like that. So I think that there's a very different culture in Canada working together, more of a communal idea that we can work together for the greater good. So I believe that we have less obstacles to overcome than here where independence is something that is ingrained into people's very souls. There's also this little thing of the tar sands, though, that Canada's doing. That's, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so Canada's going full bore on the tar sands is a major economic mm-hmm. growth, which you know, uh, scientists would say could really blow up the whole system. Yes, and there, there is significant resistance here in the U.S., but there's also very significant resistance in Canada to that work, too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some of the, 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 uh, the personal attacks. I want to go back to that. The, uh, the, uh, there's been some, I think it was in your book, Mike Mann, that uh, you wrote that Sir Isaac Newton, you know, if his emails had been dissected, uh, <laughs> yes. that, that people could have found, uh, used that in the way that some of your emails were parsed to say you were doing some tricks that you weren't really trying to do. So, yeah, there's, um, there's a famous saying, um, uh, I think it was uh, Cardinal Richelieu, um, who once said, give me six lines by the most honest of men, and in them I will find something to hang him by. Um, and uh, unfortunately, when you look at the, the jargon that uh, we use as scientists, um, it's quite a bit different from, you know, the, the popular lexicon. Um, you know, we use the term trick all the time to denote a clever way of solving a problem. Uh, from your earliest years in, in training um, in math and science, uh, you learn about tricks to solving differential equations. Um, and yet, when a public um, that is unfamiliar with the language of science is exposed to a quote that uses a term like trick taken out of context, and not randomly taken out of context, taken out of context specifically in a way to try to mislead them about what was actually being discussed, say, in that stolen email, uh, it's very easy to try to convince them that uh, scientists, that, you know, indeed, as um, you know, their worst fears uh, that scientists are conspiring uh, to fool the public, um, that climate change is indeed the single greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people, which was spoken by the senior senator of uh, what is now the hottest state ever, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Oklahoma. <laughs> well, and, and Mike, you just said, you know, you could take a phrase out of six lines. How many lines of emails did they have to take one phrase out of? Well, exactly. So it was a cherry-picking exercise. But I didn't really realize until I read your book that what that sentence was and what you were actually doing. So explain what you were doing, this this tricky sentence that you were doing, where you were com- combining uh, two different types of data. Well, perhaps the, the, the most significant of the injustices was that it wasn't even my words and it wasn't even talking about my work, but somehow uh, I guess I'm the one that they were really trying to go after, so it was all sort of attached to me in some way. It was an email that I received from a colleague who was talking 
about a, a clever way of comparing two different data sets, um, one of which ends uh, earlier than the other. And so he had this record of temperatures based on trees, tree rings. And those, those trees are known not to be reliable after about 1960. They have to throw away the data after 1960. But global warming didn't stop in 1960. So he wanted to make sure that that record was placed in the context of the warming uh, of the past few decades. And so he was comparing two different data sets. And he used a trick uh, to uh, a plotting device, in essence, to compare those two different data sets. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about adaptation, because uh, there's some of this that's going to be happening anyways, no matter what we do. So what can science do to advise us, inform what we ought to do to prepare and buffer from the changes that are coming our way, no matter what we do? And Catherine, you've done some work with California, Chicago. Mm-hmm. So tell us about adaptation. Yes, I do a lot of work with regions, with cities, with states, looking at what climate change means for that location. So we've looked at California, and we've looked at city of Chicago, the Northeast. I'm doing my own work in Texas, of course, since that's where I live. And whenever we look in the future, we're always very careful to look at at least two different possible futures. What will the future look like if we continue to depend on fossil fuels as our primary source of energy and temperature continues to rise? What will the future look like if we can transition in a sensible way to alternative energy and low carbon emissions? And I really like this two-pronged approach because the lower scenario shows us what we have to adapt to no matter what we do. And there is quite a bit of that. We have no magic switch to turn everything off today. So we are going to have to adapt to a certain amount of change, and we need to know what that, that is. If you're setting aside a refuge to protect an endangered species, and you put it where the species is today, 50 years from now, even under a lower scenario, the species could be 300 miles further north. It just doesn't make sense. We have to plan sensibly for the change that will happen. But by quantifying the higher impacts, which, for example, for California would mean loss of 90% of the Sierra Nevada snowpack, that's 45% of the water supply of California, gone unless we can somehow build reservoirs to hold the rain. When we look at that scenario, looking at the differences between them helps us to quantify the benefits of transitioning from this scenario to the other. If we didn't do this analysis, the chances of being on the high scenario, I would say, would be virtually 100%. If the doctor doesn't tell you the, the, the bad things associated with eating a certain way or living a certain way, why would you ever change? The only reason we're going to change is because we learn the consequences of our poor choices. So I like to think that every time we do an assessment for a given place, looking at the difference between a business-as-usual future versus one where we sensibly reduce... I like to think that every time we do that, we're actually changing the likelihood of which pathway we end up going on. So you're saying we have to go on a low-carbon diet? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, but Catherine, you say that we're not very good at our own health. We're a fat country and don't make good uh, dietary choices. (laughs) We don't make good dietary choices when the risk is our own directly. It's in the future, but I know what I eat, right? And we don't, mm-hmm. we're not so good at even that personal, managing that personal risk if it's mm-hmm. long-term. Like man? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as uh, Catherine said, we, we have to recognize that there's a certain amount of change now that's inevitable. We've already locked it in. It's in the pipeline. And we're going to have to adapt uh, to, to a certain amount of additional sea level rise, a certain amount of uh, increased aridification um, uh, in parts of the globe. Uh, at the same time, we need to mitigate those changes that we still can. Um, uh, the fact is, if you look at business-as-usual emissions, you know, uh, through the end of this century, we are, uh, you know, talking about, as, as James Hansen has um, aptly described it, we're, we're talking about a different planet. It's not going to be the planet that we grew up on. We're talking about uh, a, an environment that we cannot adapt to, that exceeds our adaptive capacity as human beings, that ex- exceeds the adaptive capacity of ecosystems. Um, so adaptation alone is not a viable strategy. There's some who fear that too much discussion about adaptation could lead to it being a crutch for those who don't want to take the necessary actions to reduce our carbon emissions. We have to do both. We can't use one as a crutch for not doing the other. Is there any place to hide, any place to run to? I know people who've looked at the map and looked at little corners of British Columbia or New Zealand and say, that's where I'm going to go and get a farm. (laughs) Uh, Is that folly? There's there's an apocryphal story uh, that you might have heard, too, about a Russian climate scientist back in the 1960s who had one of the first climate models back then. And... In the Soviet Union in that era, 
he, running his calculations, concluded that there was only two nations in the world that would benefit from global warming, the Soviet Union and Canada. They didn't care about Canada, so he actually advised the government to burn all the coal they could to cause global warming because it would harm the rest of the world. (laughs) They didn't take his advice, but now, 50 years later, we're well on our way to doing exactly what he recommended. And all the studies coming out of Canada and the Arctic are suggesting that those places will not benefit to nearly the extent that we thought, and the balance of the impacts will be severely negative. So they'll have resources accessible to be more drilling, natural gas, et cetera, et cetera in the northern uh, climes from mm-hmm. Russia and Canada. But there's also going to be, what, more floods, food stress, forests perhaps? Fires, Bill? fires, and melting of permafrost as well that you, you know, highways and buildings can, can sink in as well. So in the, bo- the boreal are kind of what the lungs of the planet. Are they at risk? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see in the, these observations of CO2 around the globe this saw-like pattern, of course, upward trending as CO2 rises in the atmosphere, but that's, that's literally the northern hemisphere ecosystems drawing up carbon dioxide. And so it's, it's very visible in our planet's atmosphere what the, what the ecosystems do. And is that diminishing as those forests come under stress, that, that absorption? There's some early indications that it might be. Uh, partially through things like drought and die-off, but also in how the soils respond to climate warming. Uh, in general, the forests provide a great, and, and the ecosystems, uh, both marine and terrestrial, provide a great benefit to humans. They, forests alone take up about a quarter of the emissions that humans emit every year. Uh, but there's a lot of signs, and we don't know exactly when or if we've crossed that tipping point, but there's a lot of signs that they could take up less and less and eventually become a source, in which point they would accelerate climate warming. So we're going to go to audience questions soon, but I just want to ask you, um, how do you get up in the morning dealing with all this all the time? (laughs) I mean, you seriously get overwhelmed or paralyzed by this. You must have a great deal of optimism, Mike Mann, to kind of... Yeah, if you want to call it faith, uh, if you want to call it hope, um, optimism, uh, you know, we've risen to the occasion in the past. We've faced uh, global environmental threats before, acid rain, ozone depletion, and we stepped up to the plate and we tackled those problems in time, you know, maybe a little bit later than, than we should have, but in time to avert a true catastrophe. So I have some faith, if you want to call it that, that we will step up to the plate, even though this is a bigger problem. It gets at the roots of our global uh, energy economy, but we, we will tackle this problem. If you're just joining us, Michael Mann is Professor of Geosciences at Penn State. Arthur guest today at Climate One are Catherine Hayhoe, Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at Texas Tech University, and Bill Andreg, a postdoc student at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to put a, we have a microphone here. I'd like to invite your participation. If you're on this side, we please uh, invite you to go through that door. The line starts right here with our producer, Jane Ann. Uh, we invite you to join the conversation with one. One part question, uh, and if you need help keeping that brief, I'm here for you. Uh, and uh, we'll get in as many as we can, and then we'll have a brief intermission, and uh, we'll go on to the second part of uh, this evening's program. So we'd like to turn out audience questions. Yes, sir, welcome to Climate One. Uh, thank you. My name is Peter Gisell. I work in a hospital clinical laboratory. Uh, my question has to do with uh, politics of uh, dynamic modeling, especially in the social sciences rather than in environmental sciences. Um, on the GI Bill back in 1978, I took an environmental class where I learned about the theory of global warming. And a year later, I learned about a bill in the Congress that would have challenged youth across the country to consider doing some kind of community service as an alternative to military service. I got involved with that for a year, and this article came out where I propose a youth energy corps as a part of that, more so as a counterbalance to a war in the Persian Gulf. Since then, I have not been able to get any institution, academic community, or other nonprofits to consider a, a dynamic model along the lines of social science towards the implications of this youth and service question program. Is, so my question is, why is there so much reluctance in the academic community towards looking at a program that could help health, benefit the economy, education, and the next generation? Thank you. Well, um, as a, an academic, um, I, I'm not sure I see reluctance to that sort of thinking. I think there's a lot of um, sort of outside-the-box um, research and discussion that's taking place in academia today um, when it comes to the entire coupled problem of uh, social sort of earth system interactions. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of interest in understanding all of the couplings, not just 
um, the relationship between fossil fuel burning and climate change, but how humans respond uh, to uh, you know the 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 decisions that are involved and the feedbacks that actually occur uh, because climate is changing human behavior. Human behavior influences climate. Um, there is a lot of research going on and looking at sort of uh, the interesting dynamics, um, uh, the social sort of earth system coupled dynamics, if you like it, if you like. Thank you. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hello, Greg, and thank you, distinguished panel. It gnaws me. My humanness comes out when I see commercials of companies that are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. This is an audience filled with letter writers and petition signers. Any suggestions on how to effectively get to these companies? Catherine Hayhoe? Good question. Uh, I am not speaking as an expert here. That is not my field of expertise, but I've certainly heard good results from shareholder meetings. So taking a look at your portfolio, seeing what you hold, or buying something, and then going to that meeting may be a potential way to influence a company. That's the route, uh, Mike Mann, that your friend Bill McKibben is going on right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, he's sort of, he's looked at um, the apartheid, the anti-apartheid movement as maybe a model for how uh, to uh, perhaps uh, bring greater accountability to the fossil fuel industry um, and the decisions that they're making about our future. And, uh, you know, Bill is, um, he's a, it's a real rock star um, when it comes to sort of college students and um, and energizing them and getting them involved. And after all, that's sort of what we're talking about: getting involved, um, influencing policymakers, influencing decision making, um, speaking with opinion leaders. Um, you know, there's a multiplier effect. Uh, there, we all need to sort of uh, use whatever tools are available to us to um, you know to bring this issue to the fore. And just a reminder, uh, that anti-apartheid chapter started in college campuses around the country. The state of California got involved. Uh, President Reagan imposed sanctions on South Africa, which led to a sequence of events that got Nelson Mandela to be president. Yes, sir, let's have uh, your question. Welcome. Yes, well, firstly, hi, Mike in Berlin. I'm Jim Salinger, and I'm one of these aliens from New Zealand. Well, that's how the Immigration Department here classifies me. I'm actually teaching Steve, the late Steve Snyder's course at Stanford. Um, enough said about me. Um, it's very interesting when you travel around the world, it's only in US and perhaps Australia and maybe Canada mm-hmm. you, that you get this denialism, which is so strong. So the first question you have to ask is why. I might suggest puritanical roots, but I'm an alien. Uh, The second thing, I was teaching the class about three weeks ago and I had Right Honourable Helen Clark, who's UNDP Administrator, and we were saying, come on, you can have leadership from the top, but where is the the groundswell from beneath, like in the 70s or 60s when anti-Vietnam issues were important. People went out on marches. It can let's be pacifist. That, let's ask that of the two professors. Are there... That's movies? what I'm asking. Yeah. Where is it? On campus, is this a major issue for students? Are they more concerned about debt, tuition, other... Well, there was an interesting um, poll uh, that came out a few months ago. I forget the polling organization. And it looked at concern about climate change uh, in different... Uh, um, different age groups, um, and what they found was that acceptance of the science of climate change is actually as high or higher than it's ever been among college students today. So they don't deny that climate change uh, is a threat, um, but in these times of uh, you know economic uh, slowdown um, and when it's difficult to to find a job, when there are other sort of bread and butter issues on the table that you're worrying about. It's easy to subjugate something that seems distant and abstract like climate change. Um, Maybe, you know, the picture changes a bit when it starts to come home, when you have events like Hurricane Sandy, when you have record drought and wildfire, as we saw this last summer. 
I think people are starting to recognize that this isn't an abstract, far-off problem. It's something that's affecting us now. Um, the acceptance of the existence of the problem is there. Uh, the, it's really the prioritization of acting to solve this problem that is keeping us from making progress right now. And I think that may change with some of what we've seen over the last year. Catherine Hale or Bill Andreg? I agree. Bill? <laughs> I, I concur. I mean, I think that in general, college campuses and, and the younger generation is incredibly motivated by this, but that it's these long-term seeming impacts on your on your your career or, or making a living that uh, really hamper make stepping up and taking immediate action. I think it's uh, something that is changing. It's been my perspective over the last eight or nine years at Stanford. There's been an incredible change in the the community and the the student participation. Uh, when Steve Schneider taught this this course of on climate science and an overview, and as he started teaching it, it was 40 or 50 people. And by, I think, the very last time he taught it in uh, 2009, it was 300. Mm-hmm. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. change once, or President Obama to mention it once, which is a good start, but we need to take this moment and turn it into momentum. Many of us were pleased to hear Obama, in response to a question at a news conference, say that we need to educate America. What role do you think um, there is uh, in mainstream media and, and to try to get like designated shows that talk about this day in, day out, just as much as the fiscal cliff, the climate cliff, the ecological debt, and get all you wonderful experts, scientists, politicians, authors, experts on, so that the rest of America can hear this, because I really think we're still on the fringes, and uh, I, I really hope this is going to be the next wave talking about solutions. Now that we know it's here, what are we going to do about it? And there are people who know, but they're not getting out there. Yes. Catherine Hale. Um, the f- the good news is that there are already some wonderful things happening. Um, here in the front row, we have Richard Alley, who is the star of um, Earth, the Operator's Manual. And if you want to see him doing some really interesting things, including bungee jumping, better you than me. <laughs> it is a great series. Um, there's a brand new series coming out on Showtime, going around interviewing people around the country, talking about impacts and how it's affecting our lives. So there's certainly things happening, but I think that increasing the awareness that this is an issue that matters to me in my life, where I live. It's not about the polar bears. It's not about the South Sea Islands. It's about me living in San Antonio, Texas, or me living in Concord, or in Seattle, or in Buffalo, or Miami. The extent to which we can make it directly relevant and interesting to people's lives, I think, the more interest there will be. And the more interest there will be, hopefully the more chances there will be to talk about it. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome Thank to the panel. You. Thank you so much to each of you for coming. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, my name is Shauna Rappaport, and I want to um, draw on a couple of things that have actually just been brought up in these questions. I um, feel on the daily working as the education director with the Bioneers the power and passion of my generation in wanting to engage. And one of the things that I see so critically missing right now are clear pathways to support the translation of informed inspiration and this desire to engage and be a part of the solutions into direct action. And so I'm curious if you all can speak to, from your perspectives, what do you think, you know, if we had to list out, we have, some are saying now, a three-year window to reduce our carbon emissions by 40%. How do we prioritize the really key leverage points, both in terms of of reduction, is it is it a tax and rebate system, and in terms of real transition strategies that are are going to make a difference, and that the general public, and particularly my generation of young people who want to be a part of the solution, to engage. Thank you. I'd like to tackle that one. <laughs> that, that's a that's a whole another panel yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, as, as scientists, our job is to, hopefully, try to synthesize the science to provide the best possible information to make those decisions. 
But honestly, I'm so thankful that I am not in policymaking because that is the hardest thing to do. Everything, there's pluses and minuses, there's long-term, there's short-term. But I believe that there is a great amount of low-hanging fruit. That is not my area of expertise, so I'm going what other people are telling me. But it seems like there's a lot of things that we could do that, leaving climate out of it, have immediate benefits. And why are we not doing those things? Mike, man. Yeah, I would just add to that that um, uh, ultimately, you know, there's there's a there's a worthy debate to be had about what policies to put in place um, to internalize the damage that the emission of carbon is doing to the planet. Uh, but ultimately, that's what we have to do. Um, and you know, there's a de- debate to be had about it. should it be a carbon tax? Should we uh, pass cap and trade legislation or fee and dividend? Um, you know, there are now conservative groups that are advancing conservative free market oriented solutions to pricing carbon. Just the other day, David Frum, who is a pillar of the conservative movement, a former Nixon speechwriter, came out in support of a carbon tax. Um, and so, yeah. also, uh, yeah, that's happened. Uh, the uh, the pledge, uh, yeah, Grover, Grover Norquist uh, came out for about 16 hours until he got whacked <laughs> on the head uh, in support of it. But that definitely, uh, carbon taxes is, is bubbling up as one possible option. Right, and from you know, and from uh, sort of a surprising source uh, from from people on uh, sort of on, on the conservative side of the political spectrum. And ultimately, this shouldn't be a partisan political issue, right? We all care about the future of this planet. Uh, the day that Sandy hit, I was at the Hoover Institution with people from Republican administrations looking into this very thing. Bill Andrag? I was just going to build on that and say it's really a tragedy that it has become so politicized because whether you like it or not, fires burn homes, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And it's the climate system doesn't care. Uh, and I think that's our, hopefully what we can do as scientists is provide the best assessment of risk and what are the climate risks and over what time scales and regions. And then, uh, we'll do our best to encourage action, but that's, that's a whole different ballgame. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. My name is Carol Stone. Two very simple questions. One is, do you think the Mayan calendar passing this year will have any effect on the deniers? <laughs> and the other is, uh, what's the effect of the population in the world approaching 8 billion on all this issue of the carbon diet? The population bomb, the population question. I think uh, we may even have those authors in the room. Let's, um, uh, um, Michael Mann, population. Well, you know, that's, uh, there are a number of factors that, you know, when you look at global carbon emissions, um, there are a number of factors that determine, you know, our emissions. And one of them, obviously, is the population. All other things being equal, if there are more people on the planet uh, burning carbon for energy, we're going to be adding more carbon to the atmosphere. On the other hand, uh, it also matters, um, you know, uh, people who are, uh, you know, living a Western-style uh, existence use a lot more energy than people in, you know, the developing world. And so one of the terms in that product of terms that, that, that uh, you know, that, that, that uh, from which we deduce, you know, future carbon emissions is global population, and there's some uncertainty about that. Um, demographers tend to believe that global population will stabilize, um, you know, below 10, 10 billion people by the middle of this century because the developing world will take on some of the sort of characteristics of, uh, of the Western world in terms of, uh, you know, their um, rates of reproduction, for example. And so when you look at some of those projections of future CO2 concentrations and future warming, built into many of them is the assumption that global population will actually stabilize sometime mid this century. If that doesn't happen, then it actually means the problem will be even worse than we typically project. And so that's a key uncertainty. It's a wild card in the equation. I think that the bottom line really is not how many people there are in the world right now, but how many people want a U.S. lifestyle. And what that U.S. lifestyle is. Exactly. And, and that we can affect. We can affect the U.S. lifestyle. Thomas Friedman writes about an Americum, that is 300 million people living at our high material standard of living, and then there's several, two or three Americums out there coming up and the implications for that. Let's have our next question. Yes, welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. Uh, It's a bit intimidating to be in front of you and to be in front of you, sir. Um, 
what will take us to make the sacrifices necessary to save our planet, to save not our planet that will survive, but civilization? Um, my basic metaphor for what we're doing to the planet a simple metaphor is st- putting a stick in a hornet's nest, but that doesn't give you any sense of the time this hornet's nest is going to be operating. I look at the Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum. That lasted 100,000 years, maybe more, and what we're doing will raise the planet five or six degrees, and that'll take 100,000 years for weathering to pull it out of the system. When we were bombed in Pearl Harbor... We acted very quickly because there was a crisis that we all recognized. We don't recognize that we are in a Pearl Harbor right now, but it's spread in little instances all over the planet, and nothing has raised the consciousness of the common people to the degree that we see, wow, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's take on that. You know, Catherine Aho, we're not quite... That, um, Where's the sense of urgency? I mean, I could, there's a lot to talk about, but that's a good. What will it take? Will it take another uh, uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina? Will it take uh, 10 years of drought in the Midwest so that we have no food to eat? Or, as you well point out, the the snowplack in the Sierras Mm -hmm. becoming water that we're not designed to to collect. Mm -hmm. What's it going to take? How many people in the United States will have to die before the United States political system recognizes and becomes the leader so that we can actually make some changes. Bill Andrek? Well, it seems like one thing Steve Schneider always emphasized to his students is societal change takes time. And I think it's worth thinking about the metaphors we apply to dealing with climate change because Pearl Harbor is one, and it's certainly an urgent one. But potentially something like the apartheid or civil rights movement, things that are every bit is urgent, but a lot more dispersed and the time scales are a lot longer and the actions you would take and how you would talk to people about it would be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a way to, to try and communicate this urgency in a lot more complex uh, rather than we've been bombed sort of scenario. Yes. I think we can learn a lot from the past. Uh, looking at the issue of slavery, with the issue of slavery, we were the bad guys that time also. That's part of it is we're the bad guys this time, not the other people. So looking at the issue of slavery, it was a huge source of energy. It was the foundation of the economy. People were making the same arguments back then. It's not so bad. It will destroy the economy if we get rid of this. So I think that we have a lot to learn from that, from apartheid, from the way that we even handled the ozone hole problem. We have many examples we can build on from the past. But we have to recognize that it's hard looking ourselves in the face and realizing that we're the bad guys here admitting that we have a problem is the first step to finding a solution. Getting off slavery didn't ruin the economy and didn't do a lot yeah. of things. That's all right. Yes, sir, welcome. Hi. Nobody objects when a medical researcher says what needs to be done to save lives. But when a climate scientist says what needs to be done to save lives, people <laughs> get upset. So do you think that expressing your personal values and political opinions undercuts confidence in your science? Well, you know, I one of the things that I... <laughs> the ambulance is not for you. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. Um, yeah. One of the things that um, I tried to stress in my book, um, actually, was, um, again, a theme that I touched on earlier, was the fact that this should not be a partisan political issue. And uh, with the attacks that uh, I was subject to by politicians looking to discredit my work um, in an effort to discredit the science of climate change... Um, some of the heroes uh, came from uh, surprising, you know, what you might uh, consider uh, sort of surprising quarters. Um, uh, the uh, Probably the, the, the greatest sort of uh, defender uh, of us against the attacks by, uh, you know, uh, Congressman Joe Barton of Texas, who tried to subpoena all of my personal emails from uh, my entire career in an effort to, you know, find something to to discredit uh, me with, presumably. Um, It turned out it was a fellow Republican, uh, Sherwood Bollert, um, the chair of the House Science Committee. He was an old-school, pro-science, pro-environmental Republican who came to defend my colleagues and me against this... uh, this political witch hunt uh, by his own fellow Republican. Um, and so I think uh, you will find uh, this among many of uh, uh, my colleagues and many climate science, scientists today. 
we do our best to, to frame this not as a, a partisan political issue, because it shouldn't be, and there's no reason for it to be. Unfortunately, it's a fact of life that it has become somewhat of a partisan political issue. Um, but again, there is some evidence that um, there are, for example, people on the Republican side of the aisle that are now stepping up um, to the challenge of doing something about this problem. I think that um, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that science and values can provide the same information. I think that they're completely complementary in the sense of science is able to tell us what the problem is and what are the consequences of the choices we make. Our values are what have to inform those choices. What do we consider to be dangerous human interference with the climate system? A village in Alaska considers that it's already happened. A town in Texas might think it's not going to happen for another few decades or even longer. So we have to bring our values into it because we're humans. Otherwise, we don't, we don't know what to do. Our values determine what is acceptable and what's not. Let's get two more questions in here. Yes, sir, welcome. Hi. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Canada in and out throughout the discussion, and I'm wondering, as the tar sands in Alberta have become an increasing part of that province and the national economy there, have we seen a similar rise in climate denialism or, for that matter, um, refusal to acknowledge any coming effects from climate change? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we have seen that, and, and some of it at a fairly high level. Um, it turns out that a lot of the uh, lobbyists and advisors um, who uh, were behind uh, some of the efforts to stifle scientists uh, back in a previous presidential administration here in the U.S., um, literally moved up to Alaska uh, with the Harper administration, and they used the same playbook. Um, government sent, uh, scientists being censored, not being allowed to talk to the media about um, uh, the threat uh, to the environment from climate change. Uh, I have colleagues, um, uh, scientists who study the impact of climate change on polar environments, who were told specifically that they were not allowed to talk to the media um, and that was uh, being orchestrated at a very high level within the Harper administration. And like I said, it was the same playbook that had been used previously in the U.S. Um, and some of the same advisors and lobbyists who were running the show. Um, I don't think that that is unrelated to some of what we've seen happen with, uh, with policy uh, with regard to the, the, um, the, the, the tar sands, the mining of the tar sands in Canada under this administration. Let's have one question. Yes, sir. Welcome. Yes. Uh, John Addison, Clean Fleet Report. You mentioned uh, hoping to hold the line at 450 parts per million. Given the long life of CO2 in the atmosphere, given feedbacks, how many billion metric tons are we pumping in this year? What are we going to have to do to get it down to to hold it to that line? Well, you know, the um, our awardee here today, uh, James Hansen, um, has made a passionate argument for 450 ppm actually being too high, that even if we were to bring CO2 back to 350 ppm, that would barely be necessary to prevent some of the long-term changes that we may ultimately set in motion, even if we were to, to sustain CO2 concentrations at that level. And, of course, we're well above 350. We're now at uh, 394 ppm. Um, so, you know, there, there may not be a magic number. It's a matter of the extent of the risk and how much risk we want to subject ourselves to. It's sort of like, um, you know, uh, if you want to think of it as, as a freeway, you'd like to get off at the soonest exit ramp you can. But if you miss that first exit ramp, you still want to take the next one. It doesn't mean you stay on the on that freeway to uh, oblivion. Um, and so... You know, it, Bill McKibben, I think, has, has framed this pretty usefully, um, and he's done the numbers, I think, pretty carefully. We have five times as much fossil fuels already in available known reserves um, that we're ready to access. We have five times the amount that is necessary to give us two degrees Celsius, three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, dangerous warming of the climate system. So we can't even afford to tap into the reserves that we already have available, let alone be ex exploring, uh, uh, you know, investigating uh, other uh, additional reserves. Um, that's the bottom line. Any last word from Catherine or Bill? <laughs> I think it's, it's hard to look this issue in the face often and not just lose hope. 
when we see that the science grows ever more certain year after year and our emissions continue to climb at 3% per year. Not only that, but over the past 10 years here in this country, the doubt regarding the seriousness of this issue has climbed as well. So you asked a little while ago, how do we get up in the morning? How does each of us get up in the morning? Um, I have some assistance. I get hit over the head by a pillow pet most mornings. That usually gets me out of bed. <laughs> but I think that um, we all have enormous hope and faith in the, the fact that the truth can win out, that we are survivalists. We want a better world. We want a better future. And with some work, I think we can get there. Let's end it there. Catherine Hayhoe is Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at Texas Tech University. We've also been hearing from Bill Andreg, a postdoctoral student at Stanford University, and Michael Mann, Professor of Geosciences at Penn State. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming and listening to Climate One today.